Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, alien researchers abduct managers from workplaces across America. Bewildered interns end up discovering the cure for cancer in the fountain of youth, but have no idea what to do with them. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to Nebula and Dragon Award-nominated author Charles E. Gannon about his new book, At the End of the World. This is set in John Ringo's best-selling Black Tide Rising series, uh, In That Milieu. It's the story of a bunch of teenagers, several of them at-risk youth types, um, who are caught out sailing when the Eat Your Neighbor plague hits. Our hero and narrator is one of the poorer kids on board. It's all kids except for one exception, a crusty captain and teacher who knows he has to find a way for these kids to survive a completely changed world. So that's coming up, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. We got some cool SF and high-stakes adventures with this month's hardcovers and trade paperbacks. First, there's combat of transplanetary proportions in Battle Luna, that is, the Earth and the Moon. This is a cool collaborative novel uh, between Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, and some others. In this future, the lunar colony is a mining colony with only internal security capabilities. Nobody's even considered that there might someday arise a need to defend the place from Earth. But that day has come. Something has been uncovered on the moon and everybody wants it. There's only one solution. Turn Luna into a battlefield. Next up is The End of the World by Charles E. Gannon. We'll talk to Chuck very soon about that. It's about the Voyager, which is a ship bound on a senior year summer cruise to adventure and science and stuff like that in the uh, Pacific. They start out down in around the equator. Six kids aboard suburban geeks, street smart kind of kids, and this British captain who's crusty, ghoulish, never smiles. What could go wrong? Well, the whole world goes wrong, and they are left to figure out what to do. If they can avoid killing each other in the process of reaching their destination, they just might have a chance. Then we have DJ Butler's In the Palace of Shadow and Joy, which is a new end-of-time, dying-earth sort of science fiction world that's, that's almost fantasy but isn't. It's science fiction. Bard Indrigit Twang and Mercenary Fix have been hired by a powerful, rich merchant to protect the life of opera star Ilsa without peer for the duration of a wrist contract. But an attempt is made on Ilsa's life, and Indrigit and Fix find themselves hunted by multiple mercenary squads and targeted by some of the most powerful people in this amazing far-future city of Kish. Will they be able to save themselves or protect Ilsa? Well, we'll find out when the fat lady sings, as they say. All right, and finally, Catherine Asaro's The Vanished Seas delivers grit, majesty, and mystery on a far-flung planet. 
Major Bajan grew up in the Undercity, a community hidden in the ruins, buried beneath the glittering city of Cries on the imperial planet Raylacon. Caught between the astonishing beauty and crushing poverty of that life and filled with wanderlust, she entered the military and did very well there. Now she's a private investigator who solves cases, and the people who keep calling her in is the House of Majda, the royal family, which is centered in Cries. Now, a bunch of elite of the city of Cries are disappearing, and Bajan, who grew up in the inner city, can go down there and find them, because that's where everyone thinks they are, if she isn't murdered first. But if she survives, waiting for Bajan is a cool revelation that may transform Cries and the Empire itself forever. And it, it is, um, the book itself and the, sort of the idea is kind of a cool Dune homage. It's a great, great little read. Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, and others, and The End of the World by Charles E. Gannon, In the Palace of Shadow and Joy by D.J. Butler, and The Vanished Seas by Catherine Asaro are all available at booksellers everywhere. Hey, it's summer, the sun's staying up longer, so you can too, and, you know, read. Oh, and you can also turn on those reading light things, or use some of your batteries if the apocalypse is hit before you hear this. Reading has survival value, so get to it. One welcome, Charles E. Gannon, to the podcast. Hey, Chuck, how's it going? Hi, Tony, how are you? Pretty good. Um, you know, stir-crazy, as usual, <laughs> these days. Um, I heard from you that you, uh, that, that you went uh, on, a, on a work spree finishing up a, um, a 1632 novel with Eric. Um, is that something we're going to be looking forward to? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a November release. It's called 1636, No Peace Beyond the Line. It is the long-awaited, I am told, sequel to Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, uh, which is, it, uh, who knew that it was going to be, I think, almost six years between them. But people will certainly get, um, I, I believe it is worth the wait. It was a, it turned out to be a, 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 fairly, a fairly voluminous volume. That we know where that word comes from now, and um, and I had a lot of fun writing it, and uh, I hope you all enjoy it. And it's got great Tom Cade cover art, and all the stuff you'd normally expect. And um, it's a it's it's one of the best things about this novel was that I really knew what was going on in it. As in, I'd been writing bits and pieces of it when I started. I already had thirty thousand, forty thousand words in my back pocket, just because of stuff I'd been I'd been sort of seeing in advance. And then, um, and then when I started, I, I knew everything I was doing, except for the one thing that I never plot out too closely is I let the characters sort of evolve as they will in the course of it. it, it the story, that usually doesn't impact the story very much, but it impacts why people are doing things and how they react to them and how I fe they feel about them. And that was where I had this wonderful sort of uh, discovery component in it. And for me, the big discovery component is what happened to the female characters. Um, I won't say more than that, except to say that it was a um, – their revelations were my revelations. And uh, what was fun to do was to take three people, because the three primary women in it are all members of the Danish court um, back in the 1630s, historicals, and when they – come to the new world, a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the, frankly, the constraints of arranged marriages, permitted careers, all this sort of stuff, they come loose 
because this is they're they're not in a in a colony like like the Spanish colonies, which have been in place in many cases for almost 150 years at that point, and uh, which are well established cities in their own right, you know, and 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 the conventions and expectations of Spain have been largely transported to them, particularly at the upper crust of society. But these ladies are from the upper crust of society in a kind of struggling small colony, and you know you wear a lot of hats, and that was really fun to write. It was uh, it, it took the novel in some directions I really didn't expect on a character level, which was just a huge amount of fun. So now you've learned more about that than you probably yeah. ever planned on. But well, there you go. hopefully we'll talk about it in November. What is the what's the name of that one again? It is called 1637. No Peace Beyond the Line. And, um, and it's, it's a sequel, sequel to Commander Cantrell and the West Indies. Yeah. Exactly. And then what are the other, uh, you've done the Papal Stakes and 1636, the Papal Stakes. What are the other Ring of Fire books you've done? The other one that I've done, full book, is, the Va- is Vatican Sanction. And yeah. that was a... Um, that was in, I think, 2017 it came out. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I think it's... Um, that's that's essentially the end. I don't know that it's the end of what I will call the Italian or Mediterranean arc, but it is definitely the end of the papal arc, which uh, which Andrew Dennis started the first two with Eric, and I completed with the second two. Since I think it's it's uh, look, if anybody do, do, out there doesn't know yet that the Pope dies, uh, <laughs> the real one, I'm sorry, it's been three years. We spoilers have shelf lives, so. Um, so the bottom line is that that one uh, that kind of was a that was a, a lot of fun for me to do um, and uh, for a bunch of reasons. But I also learned what I would call the the it, it's interesting. Those have had very different audience responses than than some of the other stuff that I've done, and I think I know why. And it has to do with I think the papal stuff. There's there's only so much simplification you can do uh, when it comes down to theology and religious matters and laws and things like that. And I think that's some people dive into that and love it. And some people are like, eh, where do we get on to the next action sequence? And that's fine. And I mean, they're, they're both in, they're both in, both of those books have them in there. Um, but, um, but when you get right down to it, uh, when I was thinking of, uh, 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 Vatican sanction, really the thing that was going through my head, I mean, it is seven days in May. You know, <laughs> there is a, literally it is seven days in May. Um, but the other thing is I kept on thinking Day of the Jackal. And, um, you know, the thing about these, these uh, what I will call fairly authentic um, spy novels, intrigue novels, procedurals, is that they, their action is very different. And, um, and that, was, that was fun for me to write. It was also something of a discovery. Yeah, because I always find I I learn something with every book. Uh, I don't feel a. I mean, any writer that thinks that they're done, I've learned it all. Uh, well, you've just you've just hit your peak, because <laughs> now you. What do you tell me? You're just dialing it in. Um, so uh, so that was a that was a good learning experience, and also a measurement of I think how audiences have been altering over time. Yeah. Well, um, in addition to Ring of Fire, of course, you are also you also are the creator and the author of the uh, Kane Riordan series, which includes um, the Nebula-nominated Compton Cruck Award-winning Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, Raising Kane, Kane's Mutiny, and the Mark of Kane, which is uh, out right now in uh, in mass market. 
for those who are listening and who care, like all the other books that, that you'll be talking about with other people on the show right now, um, you know, Dragon Award uh, eligible. So folks out there, you know, you can all <laughs> get on you it. You can all vote and whether it's me or somebody else, do it, you know. It's it's uh, like I like I like to say there are two ways you can be 100% sure that your voice that that you you can influence the shape of science fiction and fantasy and that is buy what you like and vote in the Dragon Awards for what you like cuz the Dragon yeah. Awards are there's no cost, you don't have to have a membership and all you need is a smartphone or a computer. And that's it. And the mark of Cain is uh, is is really it's big and thick, and it would make really good beach reading, also. Well, it's it's well, I guess it's big and thick for for other people's books. Actually, for mine, it's the second shortest in the series. <laughs> that's that, it, came, it came in at a hundred a hundred fifty eight thousand words, which actually which was it's it's dedicated to to Tony Weisskopf for a very good reason because she took one look at the size of that puppy when it came in and said, Chuck, we have to have a conversation." We did, and it was um, you know she's a very it, she she edits rarely and with a light hand in terms of there's very little sort of what I would call um, detailed sort of do this do this do that do the other thing. I think Tony it. I don't know what her philosophy is, but certainly my philosophy when I've taught writing is if you if you are correcting, you can say, here's a problem in this, or here's a challenge, or here's where it stops moving. But if you then go and fix it for the, the, the writer, they don't learn. And And she's really good with that. She'll sort of say, you know, here are the challenges I see. And she has both the confidence and the respect for the author that and that they're smart enough to understand that that's an opportunity. And uh, that's exactly how I took it. And it really is a case of a vastly improved book. And she got the, it's dedicated to her because she was the, uh, she, she made the craft happen. Yeah, she's a pretty good boss in other ways too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I do want to jump in with one last thing. There are other, uh, I don't even know uh, how, how, how broadly this is known at this point, but there's an imprint out there called now Beyond Terra. And if that sounds a lot like Terran Republic, there's a reason for it. And the reason for that is because there just have been a whole bunch of folks who wanted to play in the, um, in the, uh, the Terran Republic sandbox. What, what David Weber tells me, assures me, is being called by fans the Caneverse. So, okay, the Caneverse, if you will. Um, and uh, and so Chris Kennedy of Chris Kennedy Publications and I, uh, a couple of years ago, sat down and said, you know, should we explore this? And we did, and we have, and it is doing really, really well. I won't go into the details on that, but there are stories from the universe, and they are not sidebar stories. Uh, they are connected to the main arc, even if they don't always seem like it. And I'll also be having a Kane, a canonical Kane novella, coming out through Beyond Terra, which is a Caneverse, it's an exclusive Caneverse imprint at Chris Kennedy Publications. And um, so so this gives me an opportunity to tell some shorter arc stories that would never, you know, I could probably expand almost anything to a novel, but I won't. Uh, well, except for when I do. And uh, <laughs> I try not to. And this is a case of, uh, a case of now these, these things have a place to live, and Tony was all for that. And uh, so... So yeah, and we're offering that uh we're going to offer that right on uh, as an ebook at at Bain ebook so you can get it here at the website. Uh yeah, oh, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure that almost all the CKP books are are carried. Uh yeah, they are. As part of the electronic library, so I couldn't imagine why that wouldn't be. And uh, Law Signals, which originally was with uh, Eric uh 
Eric Flint's uh, Ring of Fire Press as an anthology is actually um, the rights of uh, Eric was very nice and he said, look, you should, you know, you should have all your, all the same colored horses should be in the same corral. And so that one is also going to be uh, issued in a new edition through Beyond Terror Press. So um, it's a lot of stuff, merchandise, all of that sort of stuff is rolling out the pipeline (laughs) in the next 12. Well, that's very cool. The cane verse. Yeah. The cane verse grows um, <laughs> and expands. So, well, let's let's talk about uh, John Ringo's world. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> At the end of the world by Charles E. Gannon. Uh, this is a standalone novel that's a, well, it's a going to be a pair, I think. It's set in the world of John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series with its science-based zombie apocalypse. So maybe uh, tell us what this means. Uh, before we get into the story, how did you come to write an entire novel, novel set in the Black Tide Rising universe? I, I think that's this is, this is slow-pitch softball with a melon, I think, at this moment, because I'm sure you know the story behind this, right? Um, which is that this actually started out, so the, I was invited to participate in the first anthology, but I, I just didn't have the time. And a second, you know, then the second, you know, invitation comes in is the I think it was Voices of the Fall. That's the second one, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I think it was. And at any rate, I, I I really wanted to say yes, so I did. And I I talked to uh, to Kelly, uh, who uh, who was who was uh, sort of I guess being the um, the author wrangler for that particular um, anthology set in the Black Tide Rising Universe. And I said, I got an idea. I think it's going to take me about ten thousand words, though. And he said, Well, okay, sure, I can give you ten thousand words. So I'm pretty much close, pretty much on deadline. I turned in uh, my 35,000 word, 10,000 word story. And, 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 uh, <laughs> Kelly, from what I understand, he looked at it and he didn't know what to do with it. Cause he said, I can't cut anything. And, and from what Tony said at, uh, I think dragon con, the last time there was a dragon con that humans were able to attend. Um, and she said, ah, pass it over to me. I, I can cut it down. And Tony couldn't cut it down. <laughs> so, so now I didn't know any of this was going on. So I turn it in in something like October, and the months go by, and the months go by, and the months go by. I'm like, okay, I think, I think I just killed myself here. So I get a letter that basically says, well, obviously we can't use this; it's too big. How can we, you know, thirty-five thousand words in an anthology? No way. But would you like a novel contract? <laughs> like, well, you know, as Tony points out, this is not a way to be published at Bain as a novelist. This is this is not this is not. Dude, no one should, you know, don't try this at home. Uh, and had I known, I wouldn't have tried it at home. Uh, but it happened to me rather than me happening to it. Um, and at any rate, uh, so so that's how the novel took came into being. And the reason it's a duology is that I got to the, the wrap-up point um, sometime late last year, and I called Tony up, and I said, Tony, this this really had a lot of legs in it. And to do it justice, I could either cut it back, you know, by like about, and I think it would look really streamlined, or I can I can let it be the length it wants, which is about two one hundred thousand word novels, and that's uh, that's exactly what occurred. Um, so that's what's that's what's in the process of happening now. You'll the this one is the first, and the second one, which I believe is a March release, is at the end of the journey. Yeah, they got to go back for Willow. All right, we won't say more. <laughs> <laughs> they do indeed. 
So anyhow, well, I have to do something. Yes, exactly right. So what, uh, all right, uh, let's just, let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, the, uh, this is some at risk youth. Uh, well, they're not, not, not necessarily some of them are and some of them aren't, but they're, they're on a, on a South sea sailing voyage, um, over the summer. Why are they there? What's the Voyager and who is this crusty old captain named Haskins? The great ghoul of the ocean sea. Uh, There's something mysterious about him. So. There's something very mysterious about him. He runs a 70-foot uh, pilot race pilot cabin um, sailboat. Um, it is it, it it there's this there's this thing journey to adventure or journey to discovery. I, I wrote the book, but you can't. I think it's journey to discovery. And um, one of the things that anybody who's listening to this, let me tell you something about being a writer. By the time a book is out, you have almost forgotten 90% of it simply because you've, you've already written two books since then. Um, literally <laughs> that's literal. So, um, so the cross currents, I think it's the cross currents Voyager is a, uh, is this ship. And, um, what it's part of is there's this, there's a cruise line that's out of, um, which is one of the few, a few made up things in the book in a sense, which is, which sails out of California and it's uh, sailed to discovery. And the notion is that this is where kids go for educational or fun voyages or this, that, or the other thing for, for reasons that are, are too detailed to go into here. Uh, Alvaro, who is our, who is our, and, and for me, this is a very big change because it's a first person narrative, narrative voice. Um, and it's done in a sort of log book, epistolary format almost um at first you think you're only going to hear from Alvaro, but before the book is over you hear from others but um he's 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 from um he's a he's a little guy i mean he's he's a, noteworthy for how spare and and short he is um or i guess maybe altitudinally challenged i don't know what the what the uh, the, the the proper terminology would be but at any rate he's um He's he's from a from a single mom only child uh, kind of was they were they were kind of uh, black sheep of the family from New York moved out to L.A. found it you know made his way through this thing but it's it's hardly a a charming story for him or his his mom and his mom actually is in a situation where she could get a really good job possibly in England but she needs to go over there and sort of uh, and and uh, show that she can do the job and that she's the right person for the job and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that's going to happen over the summer between his graduates high school, I think valedictorian or salutatorian, salutatorian, I believe. And, um, and, and when he starts a college problem is there's no one to leave him with. Um, he's in, he's in a crappy part of LA. So they're figuring out what, what happened. So, she says, well, look, there's this thing that's, you know, discovery, you know, uh, sell to discovery. Why, why don't we do that? And it was one that was really inexpensive. Well, there's a reason why it was inexpensive. Everybody else is going to places like the Galapagos or the Caribbean or, you know, places like that. This one goes down to the Falklands and South Georgia Island. <laughs> this is the one that either people get on because they have no choice or because they're really science nerds with a specialty in marine life in, in, you know, the sub sub Antarctic regions. Um, and so that's the one that they get on right at the end of the school year, the high school school year in, uh, in that fateful year of the, uh, of the fall. 
So he's on a boat when it all goes to pieces, and so is everybody else. And, and most of these kids are kind of like in one way or another, only one of the, I think, seven kids, if I recall it correctly, I don't want to sit here and make everybody wait while I count, but it's six, I'm pretty sure it's seven, maybe eight, um, they, that, uh, that only one really wants to be there for the science aspect of it. Almost everybody else is like, I had nothing else to do with my summer. You know, oh, I got to, I got to make my, my GPA look better. I got, I got to do something that makes it look like I'm serious, et cetera, et cetera. And the only adult on this is, is this guy, as you call him, Captain Hassels, and he's, um, he's not the most talkative individual. He's extremely capable. And they set sail, and they're supposed to, one of their first stops is, I believe, supposed to be in, I, I think it's the city is in, in Chile, Valparaiso, but they don't. And the first, the first good third of the book is um, is them in the process of sailing, learning to sail, learn with each other, but also realizing increasingly that the world out there is changing and it's changing fast and it's changing in a very, very unpleasant fashion. And uh, by the by the time you're getting through, like I said, that third of the book, they have begun to encounter all of these changes and what they're um, what's in store. Yeah, well, they're they're the slow revelation of of what's going down in the rest of the world is is cool about the whole series, the beginning books of of John and um, and also Mike Massa's um, contributions to the Black Tide Rising universe. I mean, it's not a huge secret now. We could probably say that what they're slowly realizing is that what that um, the, that there's been a plague. There's been a plague uh, that there's a reason that they the 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 captain got kind of he was he was kind of good natured offhanded no he wasn't good natured he was crusty but he was offhanded but he got someplace around four weeks out three weeks out from uh, from which means they've been with him about two weeks he starts getting very serious about their seamanship skills very serious about their ability to read maps and to and to plot a course and to and to you know shoot a coordinate with a sextant and things like that and they're saying like what what you know what are we 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 going to be like you know we're going to be uh you know the the, uh, the you know, prince henry the navigator or something like that you know why where are we doing all this well there's a reason and he knows what it is and um and so and and so that's uh that that's how things begin to change and the the fact that he sort of puts the radio off limits and then it and then you got to remember something too these are 17 and 8 year old 18 year olds and they some of them have come from some some of them are, are from wealthy families some of them are from really hard luck stories and but no 17 or 18 year old in a in what is essentially a crew of 17 or and 18 year olds is going to react to the the plague in the way you would get in an adult group. Now, in some ways, it's arguably better <laughs> because adults very often, the way I look at it is, I mean, by the time they're getting the news of this, they have been used to operating under a, a captain who's probably at least three times their age very, very capable. And so leadership is not a question, which very often amongst adults is. You've got all sorts of egos and, and issues that can that can create a real problem there. But the problem in this case is they're 17 and 18, and the number of life skills that they don't have that they're going to need, that's a pretty long list. 
And so, uh, so I had a lot of fun writing this. It's so it's as somebody once, as somebody said, a real devotee of the series. It's so much the same thing, but it's entirely different. And it's like, okay, good. That's that's kind of what you're shooting for in an environment like this. I think. Yeah. Well, Alvaro, uh, Alvaro, our our main character, immediately the the captain sort of picks him out as 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 the smart kid that. It's probably going to be the leader here, even though he is not aware of that at all um, at first. Um, what are his quality? And the other thing is, like, tell us some of the sailing stuff that, that he learns, which is cool. Uh, and it makes me think you know how to sail. I've done a little, but I let's put it like this. I know enough not to make any claims because real sailors... I mean, I I don't think I get much wrong in there, but um, but the bottom line is I, I'm not going to claim myself as being a sailor. I've 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 put a hand I've put a hand to a sheet on a couple of occasions, so to speak, and and uh, and stay away from the boom bang and all that. But anyhow, well, you're a good writer, sailor. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing the thing is that that actually I would say that um, just for a second you'll get far more detailed uh, references to sailing small boat and large square rig vessels actually in the in the two Caribbean novels for 1632. I don't go too much into the details, but certainly weather, charting, and things like that, uh, knots. What, he, what, what the captain taps him for is because it turns out, you know, that like most of these things, if you're a kid and you're going on these things, you have to submit kind of a background, you know, and his background, he can't conceal the fact that he's you know, he, he's a really smart kid. One of the reasons why he he puts it off to the fact that, well, I just have this trick, and his trick is that he is about as whether or not you believe in uh, an eidetic or photographic memory, he has something damn close to it, if not that. And um, and he's also been very good at making people underestimate him. When you're as small as he is, uh, that's. That's one thing you learn to do. You know, either you have to you have to, you know, play play it you know, go go way big or go home. Or in this case, let everybody draw what conclusions they're gonna make about you, which are gonna generally be underestimations and capitalize on them. And that's the sort of person that Alvaro is. So there's kind of a way he's had to deal with life from what I will call a tactical uh, perspective, which makes him probably the best thinker for this sort of situation where, you know, the wheels have come off the bus and uh, to, to throw an automotive metaphor into the middle of a, a sailing novel. But, um, but he, uh, so he has that, he has this, he has this eidetic memory. He's very good at math. And so he's able, he reads through all of, you know, night seamanship and this, that two different versions and he will even remember tabular data and that you know the the captain sees that and realizes okay <laughs> you know uh knowing what may be coming and that probably computers are likely to be a thing of the past largely um he's looking at one in a sense and um and that when and if that fails that this this kid will still have that capability but he also kind of has the respect of the other kids because he will it doesn't matter how little he is he won't be bullied and he doesn't advertise something else to some of the most effective bullies who i will not i won't even name so i don't spoil any any surprises along the way but he 
basically he was smart enough and his mom was smart enough that they looked at, well, how is he going to take care of himself? So he, you know, a lot of martial arts like Krav Maga or, or a lot of uh, just a whole bunch of them, like Shotokan Karate, they require a fair amount of, of in your face strength and, and delivery of impact. So they were looking for something which if you're not overly aggressive, if you're likely to be underestimated, is it going to dominate the field? No, but will it get you out of a sticky situation more likely than something else? Yes. And so they go with, um, why can't I think of it now? Because uh, I, I, I Aikido. Um, and for those of you who know Aikido, Aikido is all about joints. It's all about angles. It's all about leverage. It is not about raw strength. As a matter of fact, it is sort of designed specifically as a lot of, particularly the Japanese, uh, the Japanese martial arts, very often uh, you can see how they are, they address certain, um, what, what I will call uh, combat situations or combat environments or scenarios where, for instance, if you take a look at a lot of the Japanese weaponry, such as the tonfa or the, the nunchaku or things like that, the sai, these are all actually evolved from farming implements. And the reason for that is that in their Okinawan weaponry, and the reason for that was that the, the samurai who occupied that island, um, you know, weapons were forbidden, swords were forbidden. But so some canny individual said, well, can we make a weapon of something that's just naturally in our hand? And that's why that's why Okinawan weapons, in, in many regards, just you, you wouldn't think that they're weapons. They're, they're so odd because they don't originate as somebody sitting them at there and saying, well, that's what's the best kind of weapon we can make? It actually starts at a very different place, which is how can we use this tool that that no one would think of as a weapon, but we can use as a weapon. And martial, their martial arts show a lot of the same things in terms of size uh, of, of, the, of the, the various combatants, you know, what sort of things you bring to the fight. And Aikido is very much for, is, is one of those sort of things that's overwhelmingly defensive rather than offensive. You, starting a fight with Aikido, is is really kind of a contradiction in terms, but but for but if you are the person who's receiving first, and if you have a if if you have a significant or not um, disadvantage in size, um, this can be this can be a, a, a it's designed to be an equalizer, and he manages to use that to make people change their minds about him very quickly early on in the story. Yeah. Well, let's also talk about Chloe, who is uh, another main character in the book, and, and she's very different than him, um, and in some ways alike. Um, and uh, she's uh, she she comes to be a, a really winning character. She she starts off pretty gruff. Um, tell us a little bit about her and where she comes from. So she is um she's actually from Alaska um and she is uh she's from another one of these unfortunately broken homes even harder uh, a harder situation than the one that um that uh Avaro came from and if you can imagine a physical opposite to him she's it um and she's uh she comes with a lot of really practical skills she also um she learned what it's like to live in a not very big town, you know, not too far south of Denali when you get right down to it. And, uh, and what are the skills you get there? Well, you get very different ones. Also when you're, you know, let's, let's, let's not, let's not play that, that there is, 
if if you're coming from a broken home and your home is breaking apart when you are still at what I will call a vulnerable age, very often uh, women are going to learn very different lessons and very different cautions than a young man will, and uh, and that shows up as well. And uh, but she has. She has all these sort of skills with, with for instance, guns and knowing about uh, knowing about uh, trails and hunting and animal habits and things like that because that's where she's from. Um, she 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 is, but she doesn't have the book smarts. She's not she's not unintelligent, but well, anybody you know, I'm not here to make social commentary or anything like that. God knows. But the bottom line is when you come from a you come from an area where the, where it's very often difficult to get teachers to begin with, and you come from a broken home, and and therefore no one is is sort of like you know monitoring your your school attendance or performance. And in a lot of those states, you know, as as a lot of people are going to know when I say this, um, you you New York State, you have a lot of people who who can opt out for ag- agricultural reasons of high school at sixteen. Um, I, I lived in one of those areas for a while, so um, you know, and she's. She's in, in not in one of the epicenters of uh, of culture in Alaska, and uh, and she suffers from she she she's having to overcome both of those deficits. But one of the things about this novel is about overcoming, and uh, not all can and not all do, and that's uh, I don't uh, this boy if there was ever a novel I don't like writing pretty novels. <laughs> what I mean by that is uh, to me. Uh, there's there's a certain there's certain there's a certain thing that energizes me about what I will call grit. Grit is energizing for me in that you really have to ask, what would a human do, and how do humans get through these things, and how bad does it get? Um, one of the things that I do want to take a moment to say, uh, although it's kind of an insertion from nowhere, is people have to understand that these novels were written, they were done before. <laughs> COVID hit because there is in the second half of the novel a pan of praise, not merely to the sensation of toilet paper, but the fact that toilet paper is one of the hallmarks of true civilization. Um, and uh, this was not this is not me commenting on COVID. This is me or reactions to COVID at any rate. This is me just uh, saying what what would these kids be thinking of, you know? Yeah. You're a futurist who looked into the future and thought of something that, 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 that others did not. not. <laughs> well, at least, at least well I here. guess what I, I think anybody who grew up in the 60s, uh, even the 50s, and, and paid attention since, I mean, there have been, there have always, there's always been end of the world fiction out there and end of the world stories out there, plenty of that sort of stuff. But um, since since you get to the point where you know well it's 32 minutes if it's coming over the pole and 11 minutes if it's if you're close enough to the coast and it's coming out of a sub but your world is going to end i grew up with that you know i grew up with that literally the the sirens you know we had a nike base uh, like 3 miles away from my house and you never knew you know when whether that was the real thing or not you didn't cuz they didn't post it so um, so I have, a, I have a lot of interesting experiences with that. And the reason I get into that is because it really sort of, it prepares you in a sense. You either are going to, you're going to assume one of three things. You're going to assume it'll never happen. You assume it's going to happen. Or you assume it may happen. Now, the may happen splits into two. 
The may happen splits into I will run towards the fireball because I don't want to live in that world or damn it, I'm not about to give up without a fight, at which point to varying degrees of seriousness, you begin to think about what that really means. Uh, I am that latter individual. Um, and my, my and, and so a lot of writing this book, there's a lot of this book that, that borrows from uh, fiction that I knew really well, and I've read a lot of growing up. And, um, and actually, I, even when I was a professor, this was one of the things that I focused on. Um, you know, the, the visions of the future, and one of the visions of the future is that for the first time in human history, sometime around 1952 or 55, our capacity to destroy ourselves was just about equal with our ability to perpetuate ourselves. And that's a change. And, um, and I was very mindful of that change. And, uh, and I got a chance to use all sorts of stuff I really didn't know if I'd ever get a chance to use, but lo and behold, I did. Yeah. yeah well, the, I mean, and that's, of course, the, the great um, fun, if you will, of, of post-apocalypse <laughs> worlds. Yeah. We get to vicariously experiencing them, experiencing experience them without having to actually <laughs> experience them. I suppose. Yeah, they um, wouldn't be a lot of fun. No, but it's fun to have heroes who are going through it. So, um, well, all right. So the Voyager heads toward um, South George Island, which is. Um, interesting in its historical sense and you bring in a lot of that too um, tell us a little bit about that and king edward point cumberland bay all the operation paraquet uh, maybe a little bit uh, because um that's some cool history that um, comes into play here you know and and it's, what's kind of interesting is that you would think yeah right um, uh, you would think that i would approach a novel like this entirely different than let's say my other because I really do consider this hard science fiction. It's just hard science fiction near future with, with a certain, you know, there's a certain change element. Um, but I approached this in almost exactly the same way I'll approach a Kane Riordan novel, which is I really want to know everything I can, that I can know about what I'm writing about. Because I think that's where, I think if, I think this may not be true for all novel novelists, but I actually kind of feel that if I don't know what I'm talking about, really know what I'm talking about, I think the reader's going to to detect that. And and maybe they wouldn't think twice about it, but I I I like to think I hope that the the effort of really getting gra the granularity, I guess I would say, of the details and and the story and the observations that they that that enables is is hopefully something that brings the world alive um for a reader. And uh, they might not many readers might not miss it if it wasn't there, but it's the way it's my process and that is in this case, I didn't have to make anything up. Um, there, it's it's fascinating. I wish I could share, and if I had more time, I probably would. The all of the background material I I, I dug up on this. There, uh, so South Georgia Island. Um, it is one of the. I think it it sits astride just about the Antarctic, the subantarctic circle, and uh, and it's um, it used to be. It was best known for being a whaling. Um, a whaling island. It is not an island that that anybody was able to make a go of living on by themselves. Uh, the Falkland Islands are borderline, but you can but they have enough of a season. They have enough diversity of ecosystem and things like that that they can 
you know, that you can actually, you can, you could live on them. The, the South Georgia islands always had to be supplied from outside. Even if you were willing to go, you know, to, to take the risks of ketosis, that you have no carbs in you at all, then you get into the problems is, is there enough, is there enough diversity in the growth of like, you know, are there enough berry bearing plants? Are there anything like that, that you can get just all the minerals and vitamins you need? <laughs> and the answer to South Georgia Island is not really. Um, as it turns out, there there may be some desperate answers, um, but uh, that it is it is that inhospitable a climate. <laughs> King Edward Point, excuse me, is an Antarctic research station, although it is not inside the Antarctic Circle, but it is um, it is one of the largest southernmost stations. Uh, it is a year-round station. Um, there's interestingly another year-round station that's actually on Antarctica. It's one of the very few. If you take a look at Antarctic stations, things I didn't know before I started writing this book, most of them are seasonal. The overwhelming majority of them are seasonal, and they board up during the height of the winter. Uh, not surprisingly, perhaps. Uh, so let's let's just say this: it's surpri- it's hardly surprising that it isn't the other way around. Yeah, let's go here for winter. Let's leave during summer. Um, but uh, but that one is called Rothera, and all of this was part of the research because. Um, the the interesting thing from the Black Tide Rising series perspective is there, this area has two interesting. It's what it's what pulled me to the area. First of all, I knew I wasn't going to be getting under anybody else's feet. I knew that most of the activity had been elsewhere, far in far more temperate zones. So I figured, okay, let's go here. Uh, the other thing was that because it's isolated and it's cold. Well, we've learned, of course, now that the bug really doesn't the, the plague doesn't like the cold. Um, it, um, and that's a good thing. Um, but also it's very, these are very isolated reasons. You know, if you're not conducting science, you probably are not going to go to South Georgia Island, not after the whaling stopped and the whaling stopped sometime, I want to say around like the 1920s. And there've been these, these, there, there are something like six or seven abandoned whaling stations there, which you can find all sorts of images on them. And there are all, and there are PDFs because they're all under some sort of um, environmental and, and, and historical management uh, division out of, uh, out of the English government and uh, the British government. And, and so they do these reports on, on the status of it. So I was able to find this report, which was real, which was fascinating. You know, the, year of the fall is essentially 2012 and and this report was tendered i believe in something like october 2011. so when i was looking at the pictures and i'm looking at the description of the facilities and this that and the other thing i'm really looking when you go back in time i'm looking at the way it was when these kids would be would be visiting these places and and through king edward point is the oldest and the largest in a in a in a fairly large bay Cumberland bay and um the uh, it's a it's a it's a weatherproofed bay in a lot of ways, given the the way it twists and turns around and you know a storm is not going to run up that bay to to hit you where you live. It may hit part of the bay, but it's not going to hit you. And uh, King Edward Point is a research station which has I think about 22 people in the summer, and goes down to 10 to 12 overwinters. And uh, it is served by ships that come out of uh, for the most part out of the Falklands. And uh, and it's a uh, it's the, the thing the interesting thing about these environments, as one might guess, is they are among the world's most self-sustaining um, 
that's probably not the right, right word for it. They're self-sustaining in the way that a space station or a submarine is, you know, in the sense that they are, there's no way to go down the road to get what you need from Ace Hardware or Walmart, because that's, you know, several thousand nautical miles away. So, so the bottom line is these places are uniquely positioned to actually have enough stores on hand to survive one of these, to survive one of these occurrences. And that is, uh, that was another thing that, that became very interesting about them. And King Edward Point is, other than the Arctic, the actual Antarctic base of Rothera, um, is is their largest facility is the largest British, British uh, Antarctic society I forget what the the acronym is down there there's a lot of information on it on the web it actually turns out that there's a sort of um, a main facility and an offsite facility that is not immediately uh, evident unless you go digging really hard um, and I did <laughs> dig really hard um, and uh, so that's uh, that's and so it 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 lay fallow for a long time, and there was always, I think, weather stations down there or something, and uh, and then it you know it increased in significance uh, again as a as a sort of environmental um, as a sort of environmental uh, studies area, and um, and cool. then what I wound up doing, which will become probably more important in the second book, is it became very obvious to me that um, people either would have left in those things or would still be around. So one of the things is that although it is an immense area, um, if you go at the right time of the year and if you have the right sort of competencies, you are either looking at a desperate bid to find survivors in places where you're more likely to find them, frankly, for the same reasons, you know, <laughs> or, um, or, you're, or you're going to find largely, for, for whatever other reasons, if the, if the plague actually did get there, it was, it's probably wiped everybody out and starved to death. And if you find anything, well, just make them chase you outside and die because it's cold. <laughs> they, they take their clothes off right away. So there you go. Um, that's, that's a pretty, you, know, it does, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. But it, it, for all of those good sounding things, there are immense challenges of environment, um, of technical competencies that if you don't have, that, you, you might not even be aware half of the things you need to know. And man, they're the sort of things that could kill you in a second. And so it was a lot of fun to write this. The, it's also a place that might, um, in, a, in a civilization fall, might attract pirates. Yes, it is. And it's not the first place they'd go, for sure. Because it is away the hell away from any place else. That's one of the appeals of South Georgia Island. But on the other hand, once things have descended far enough, um, you know, it's it's opportunity cost. You know, the the cost benefit, the the return on investment, so to speak. Analysis changes as the plague evolves and as it gets more and more severe. And that is one of the things that very much um, that creates what I will call the um, the action that leads to the, the, the middle point, that tipping point at the middle of the book, an inflection point uh, that brings you know, a lot of changes and, and sends, the, uh, sends the crew and the ship in a very different direction than they had been before. Uh, well, and I think it's, what is I, some, I think uh, I'm not, am I giving too much away by, by saying no, that no. some of their other ports of call? Uh, no, they will no. eventually. Uh, St. Helens. Um, St. Helens. And St. Helens, and um, there's uh, Ascension Island, which is another kooky environment. 
And I mean kooky in all sorts of ways. I mean, NASA tracking station turned over to ESA, big, big, uh, big, big um, uh, significance during the as a as a SIGINT um, sort of uh, intelligence gathering. If 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 you were a spook in the even in the northern hemisphere, but in the southern hemisphere and in the and, and in the Atlantic southern hemisphere, there was no way you were getting traffic through from or updates of Ascension Island. It was just that sort of place. That is also that was the place where the uh, the Brits did a lot of the staging for Falklands. And I guess that brings me back to the one thing I should also mention about um, about just for a second, one one more second, South Georgia Island is that if I'm not mistaken, one of the first actions of the Falklands conflict was actually there. Uh, there were Argentinians who were supposedly there as for commercial reasons, and it turned out that there were. This is this is not me making it up, okay? No, no, it, that was where it started in a way, in a sense. Um, and it was uh, was it Operation Parcat was the. Uh... Yeah, um, every everybody hears about the Falklands, understandably so. Much larger operation, far more forces committed, but but the first one of the the you might you might call it the. Um, it's difficult to say whether whether this is a case of this is what the Argentinians were after, or this was going to be their casus belli that that allows them, gives them the sort of uh, the entree, you know, essentially a tit for tat escalation to go after what they call the Maldinas, which is the um, which is the Falklands, um, and uh, so there was a a a, a small ish mission to evict. Or I guess better the better word would be eject the Argentinian interlopers uh, from their perspective uh, on on South Georgia Island, and um, that act, that piece of history frequently lost is uh, it was a and and once again there are references to it, and the amount of invention is kept to an absolute minimum. As a matter of fact, there are there was there was literally at that time during Operation Parkett there was. A, a, a woman born of a, of a royal family, uh, not royal family, but an aristocratic family, Lord, I believe, uh, in England, who's down there, who's a famous ornithologist and documentarian. And she was on the island. She was on South Georgia Island with, I believe, one other person and an un, an un you can't find any reference to who their security was, sort of their uh, the person who would travel and I guess was a kind of uh, cross between guide and forager and practical person while the while the the two artist photographer types went and gathered images and built their documentary and i used all that as well that all of that fits into the story so there's um there is there is not only is this to some degree i guess you could say a, a travel log in that you go to different places which i think is always one of the things about island hopping is always fun because islands have if you if you spend any time in them, one of the first things you realize is that it can be so easy to think, oh, all islands are alike. But the thing about an island is because it is, hence we get the word insular, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's like it's a bounded environment that evolves um, in its own specific way. And an example of that is the wildlife of Australia or Tasmania. I mean, because they were separated for so long, they get very different. The same thing is not only true of wildlife on places like this, 
but but people and customs and the histories they're very much shaped by the specifics of that environment so you get a sort of travel log you know it's like yeah they're all islands but wow they're really different islands and that that was one of the one of the things that was fun about this and um and in the case of you know and and here you have this this these things you probably might not learn about otherwise and that is just for me a fascination if if Kenry Orton frequently goes to different worlds I guess I got boring and I used the same model and I put it on planet Earth, which is he goes to different islands, which are revealed as being sort of their own unique world. And um, and some of the places I uh, it, I don't I, I think I'll stop at Ascension Island, but um, because I don't want to give too much away as we get further on into the book. But um, there's a there's a lot of um, let's just put it like this. Google Maps was really useful to me. Um, there's a new, there's, and there's a new feature, well, new-ish, I guess, which allows you to actually put a slider back to when an image dates from. Um, so that was really useful in terms of looking at, you know, the, these islands were one thing now, but actually just as recently as 2012, they were very different. Ascension Island changed massively um, just in that period of time. And um, so this allows me to go back and do zoom in where you know 50 meter resolution is still pretty good. So when you're getting when you're when you're actually being walked around, so to speak, one of the whaling station, the 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 almost completely abandoned whaling station at Hustik in South Georgia Island, or when you're at you're going towards the American base and the radar the radome called um, uh, the golf ball at Ascension Island, um, all those roads, all those distances. Are because I was eyeballing them on a map. Uh, that's the degree of detail I go into, um, and uh, and that's for me. That's fun though. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, and it really it really brings them uh, brings them alive to us as readers as well, and uh, we don't have to do all the research. <laughs> so, um, what is uh, it's, it, it's a lot of fun um, to to and and you know one of our characters is a is a Falcon Wars veteran which is cool. Um, I was down there uh, at uh, right after and uh, there's signs all over Argentina that said Los Malvinas son Argentinas. Um, <laughs> it was not it was something that was a was a big deal, and I think it's still oh, yeah. a big, big deal and 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 you know it marks the anyway it. It's a it's a cool period to recount and um, and draw some um, some some history from. Um, so uh, one other thing is that um, is that you bring up a song um, in the uh, in the book that is even now um, playing in my mind, which I hate, which is the bicycle uh, <laughs> song. From Queen, um, <laughs> and I curse you for that. If if there were zombies out there, it might be something that draws them. So it might be useful uh, for readers. Just to get us to turn off. Sure, sure, yeah. Turn that goddamn thing off. Um, but uh, yeah, um, so so this was. Um, I had a lot of fun with stuff that, you know, in the in the genres that I'm usually playing, which are hard science fiction set 100 years in the future, more or less, or, or soon to be a fantasy series that will be uh, will be showing up in a, in a Bane in a, in a, in a Bane book near you. 
um, this is this gave me a chance to play around with stuff, you know, from my own time, and that was. Uh, yeah. It was kind of Ringo touch also. He always does stuff like that, brings in like <laughs> annoying <laughs> pop culture things that uh Yes. <laughs> yeah. There is there are yeah, he he uh I it would be it would I, I think that the book the, the amazing thing for me as I look at, at, at those books is how he was able to get you to simultaneously laugh at things. And in two pages later, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're on the edge of your seat, taking it seriously. And every once in a while, you, you may have to, you may have, you, you may discover that you got some dust in your eye. Um, and, um, and I think it, that, that playfulness, that, that dark humor playfulness is, um, is a wonderful thing. I, I, it is not in my wheelhouse to use a whole lot of that, but it's definitely there. But it's at a it's a it's a different level. I think it's an un, unstated level. I'm probably the person who I just wanted to stay in the moment. You know what I mean? Uh, I wanted to, and I'm not saying that John doesn't do that. I'm sure that John is exactly in the moment because he's, he's a good writer, and that's I think what a writer does. But I think our moments are different, so to speak. And uh, and for me. Once I got inside these 17 and 18 year old kids heads, I, I sort of didn't leave um, in the sense that my and also writing from first person. I, I've, I think this may be the first time since I've written in my entire professional writing career that I ever published anything other than the equivalent of flash fiction or a, you know, you may have a character who relates a segment of event. Obviously, characters are always speaking in first person, but a first person narrative voice as the as the dominant POV or point of view for the an entire novel. I've never done that before. And this was and 17 years old, 17, 18 years old. And and, you know, and and of a and and of a very, very uh, interesting mix of ethnicities and cultural backgrounds and um, diving into that. Um, I think that that I probably was staying true to that was my was my north star, and when I found myself with the opportunity for those sort of like that that it would have been totally natural to the environment that those sort of cultural commentaries would pop in, I definitely did not <laughs> I did not forsake that opportunity, but they were not they they were they were I have to say they were kind of afterthoughts. If they would fit in with the with the for me the believable flow of the narrative, then I'd use them. And if I didn't, I, I didn't even think I, any more than I would have thought about any adding anything else. It's it's you know it's about the narrative. It's about being true to the story that that is unfolding between your own ears. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's a really cool amalgam of a book. It's action packed. It has um, these great uh, young characters. It, it's, it could certainly be something that uh, that you could give to a teenager to read too. But it's you know it's for adults as well. I think the language. <laughs> I'm going to just say. Yeah. Well, it's not a YA. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. A 14 year old. They're going to have heard this already on TV. You know. So I don't know if that's going to be. But uh, but definitely not a YA. Yeah. No. No. Well, it's not a middle grade book. <laughs> So, but it's, I mean, I, it's for adults. Yes. But, um, the, but, but, you know, like Heinlein said, he just wrote his juveniles, you know, as adult books that have younger characters. So, 
Um, and it and it reads that way. It's really uh, really well realized characters. And Chloe in particular reminds me of the uh, the younger sister in uh, the original Ringo Black Tide Rising books as well. Um, it's not Stephanie. It's the other one. Uh, can't think of her name. But uh, and you have some of that. Uh, I mean, it, of course, it's just from the circumstances. And you throw kids into something like this, into the world scenario, and you're gonna you're gonna get some. Um, you're going to get some pathos and, and good stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's no shortage of that. And the pathos sometimes comes from the things you don't expect, um, which I think it would be consistent with, you know, if you think about for a moment, you're in a post-apocalyptic environment and you, you're spending day in, day out, every waking moment just about focusing on how you're going to stay alive, particularly when, when you're in an environment where you don't have the skills you need, you need to learn them as quickly as you can, you know, the world is, the, <laughs> there, there's no easy setting on this particular game, this particular simulation. So, you know, you got to show up every day ready for the whole game or you're gone, or at least it's very likely you will be. And, um, but then what happens, when, what happens when you get, you know, everybody's pushing for that moment when they've got enough, right? Whatever that means, enough security, enough food, enough clean water, uh, uh, enough safe space, whatever the definition is. And what strikes me about human beings is that they'll go through a small period of relief, but one of the first things that happens very often is things from their past start popping up and out of the woodwork. You know, it's like, it's like because if somebody can't let go of their past enough of it quickly enough, they're not going to survive. They're going to spend too much time diving into their belly buttons when what they've got to do is take matters, the matters they can, into their own hands, play the cards they've got the best they can, and, and do it again tomorrow. What do you do with those winnings? Well, very often what the human psyche does is then it turns around and says, hmm, you know, and this is, this is one of those Heinlein moments also, if there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you push all that stuff down, then you don't get to probably have full control over when the spigot opens up. Um, if there's stuff you're going to have to resolve, if there's, if, because this is a world, this is a world that ends, but it ends totally without closure. You know, how, how many people have closure with anybody, right? <laughs> it's like dad didn't come home. God knows he, either, he might've eaten mom. You know, he might be, he might've been one of the first ones eaten. He might've gotten away, but starved to death in some closet he couldn't get out of because he was surrounded by, by active um, by, by active, uh, you know, infected and, um, and you don't know. And all of that stuff has a, that has a price. And that's one of the things that I really, I really wanted because they get to a point, I think it's not, they get to several points as a matter of fact, where they, they kind of, they're trying to, they're trying to improve things and they hit a plateau, which is sort of like, yeah, yeah, this is better than it was. And I find those very interesting moments. Because uh, that's when you can do your biggest. That's when you can do your biggest character growing. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a it's it's a great um, addition to the Black Tide Rising series. It's a great Chuck Gannon novel. It's called At the End of the World um, by Charles E. Gannon, um, and it's at booksellers everywhere. Um, is there, there anything else we want to say about the book that we? that we can cover without giving too much away or um, is that enough? Uh, I, I think, I think we've done enough. I think that, that despite all the things that you may, that, that you folks out there listening may think you know about, believe me, 
lots of surprises in store. And, um, and I think, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, that will, that's good enough right there. Excellent. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today about At the End of the World. Thanks for having me. It's always a great time, and thanks for everybody who's listening in. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Sir, CIC is reporting something odd, Commander Wozniak said. Commodore Lessam turned from his conversation with Commander Turi, raising an index finger at the Chief of Staff in a hold-on-to-that-thought gesture. What sort of odd, Tom? It looks almost like four or five thousand recon drones, sir. Four or five thousand drones? Lessam's eyebrows rose and Wozniak nodded. That's what it looks like, almost, sir, but I don't think that's what it is. Lessam crossed the flag bridge and looked over Wozniak's shoulder at the ops officer's display. Given the scale of the plot, the impeller signatures of the drones Wozniak had reported formed a sort of haze around the deploying Solarian battlecruisers, rather than registering as distinct point sources. A digital sidebar spun upward as the sensors aboard the Ghost Rider platforms, keeping an eye on the intruders, well, he supposed the most recently arrived intruders, if he wanted to be fair about it, detected and plotted the blossoming signatures. All right, he said. They can't be recon drones, not staying that tight in around their formation. I don't know what else they could be, though. You can't really tell from the display, sir, but CIC says they're definitely forming constellations around the battlecruisers. Whatever they are, there are approximately a hundred of them associated with each battlecruiser. I guess they could be some kind of missile defense. Maybe they've come up with some new decoy platforms to replace or supplement Halo, and they're establishing as dense a pattern of them as they can around our priority targets. But that doesn't feel right either. Whatever else they are, though, they aren't stealthy enough for reconnaissance platforms. We're actually picking up a sniff of them on Klaus Fleming's shipboard sensors, even at this range. We're not resolving individual signatures clearly, not the way Ghost Rider is, but we can see them, and we shouldn't be seeing even Solarian drones at this range. Which doesn't even count the fact that there's no sane reason to launch recon drones and then keep them tied in that tight to your ships, Lessam said, nodding his head in agreement. He stood gazing at the display for 10 or 15 seconds, hands clasped behind him and lips pursed in thought, then shrugged. Well, I imagine we'll find out what they're up to in due time. 
and at least any discovering we have to do is going to happen outside anyone's hyperlimit. Commodore Quigley's on station, ma'am, Rear Admiral Rosiak said. Thank you, Bart. Jane Isotalo nodded as she leaned back in her command chair and studied the master plot. Millicent Quigley's TG-1027.4 was the real reason she was prepared to spend missiles like water against a Manti squadron outside a limit. Unless she somehow managed to close to a much shorter range than the opposing commander was likely to allow, she didn't expect to kill very many of the Mantis. Not when they could duck into hyper to avoid her fire. No doubt the Manti CO would be willing to let her waste a lot of missiles trying for kills. And under normal circumstances, Isotalo would have been concerned about the sorts of ammunition expenditures involved. In this case, however, Quigley's three 7,500,000-ton Voyager-class freighters gave her rather deeper magazines than usual. Unfortunately, the Voyagers were part of the Navy's Tuft fleet, civilian vessels designed to be taken up from trade in an emergency. The federal government subsidized the construction of Tuft units, which gave it first call on them if the Navy decided to call in its markers but they weren't designed to military-grade specifications, and the Voyagers were a civilian design. They were unarmed and carried no active defenses. They were also sluggish compared to warships their size, which was why she'd moved Quigley's freighters, the Atlas-class fleet repair vessel Hercules, and their escorting light cruisers and destroyers to a position a half million kilometers astern of Vice Admiral Tsukahara's TG-1027.2, her trailing group of battlecruisers. That gave them more time to dodge if anything nasty came their way, but it left them close enough to deploy additional huskies for Tsukahara's battlecruisers if they were needed. She glanced at the plot's sidebar. TF-1027 had made turnover eight and a half minutes ago. The range had dropped to 38 million kilometers, and the closing velocity toward the motionless mantis had fallen to 16,704 kps, 75 minutes to a zero-zero with the Terminus, she thought. Wonder what's going through their heads over there. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Christopher Labaza and Bain intern Will Allen and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and an instruction manual written in the secret language of Pig Latin for dealing with wayward teens who are really sick of Zoom meetings and recalcitrant alien ambassadors negotiating for squatters' rights. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude for Charles E. Gannon, author of At the End of the World. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.